Hello, this is James Miller, your future strategist. Today we're going to talk about the prisoner's dilemma. Let's imagine it's thousands of years ago, and our city is at war with another, and the loser is going to suffer a horrible fate. Just before our warriors leave for what we think is going to be the decisive battle, the demon Moloch appears and says, Sacrifice ten healthy loved children, and I will give plus seven killing power to your city's troops, and I'll subtract seven from the killing power of your enemy. So we think about Moloch's offer, we, we believe in demons by the way, and we decide, well, we certainly don't want to kill 10 of our children, but you know, if we lose the battle, it's just going to be so awful. It'll be so much worse than if 10 children die. And you know, it's plus seven killing power, that's a lot. So we, we all decide in our cities, like, we don't want to do it, but, but we have to. It's just, it's better than the alternative. So we're going to go to Moloch and we're going to about to accept, but then Moloch adds, he says one more thing. He says, you know, I'm an honest demon who practices full disclosure. So know that right now I am making the exact same offer to your enemy. Well, should we accept Moloch's offer? If both cities accept Moloch's offer, well, they both, you know, you get plus seven killing power yourself and the other side loses seven. But then if the other offer, other city does it, everything cancels out. So all that happens is if we both accept Moloch's offer is that both cities have sacrificed 10 healthy loved children. So clearly both cities are better off not accepting the offer than if both cities accept the offer. But unfortunately, if the other city is going to accept Moloch's offer, we need to or we're at a serious disadvantage. And if the other city doesn't accept Moloch's offer, well, now we can get a, a great, a horrible, but also a great deal by accepting it. So no matter what the other city does, we're better off accepting Moloch's offer. Now, what we'd like to do is, you know, work with the other city and collude to say, hey, let's both not accept. But let's imagine the other city is far away. We can't possibly get to it by the deadline that Moloch has given us to answer. So we're going to accept the offer and we're going to expect that the other city is going to accept the offer. We each lose 10 children for nothing. Moloch has placed us in what's called the prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner's dilemma is the most famous paradigm in all of game theory. Essentially, in a prisoner's dilemma, you can be nice or mean. It's always in your self-interest to be mean. If the other person is mean, you're better off being mean to them. And if the other person's going to be nice, you're also better off being mean to them. But a critical aspect of the prisoner's dilemma is that if you're both mean, you're both worse off compared to if you'd both been nice. So in game theory terms, being mean is what's called a dominant strategy. You're better off being mean if you somehow knew the other person would be mean. And you're better off being mean if you somehow knew the other person is better off being nice. But the game is symmetric, so you're both going to be mean and you're both going to be worse off compared to had you both been nice. So the prisoner's dilemma is an example of where rational, self-interested people can collectively achieve a worse outcome compared to if they could all be nice or all collude or cooperate to all be nice. The term prisoner's dilemma, that's because the original example involves prisoners 
where two people are arrested for a crime and they each have the option of confessing to the police and getting a lighter sentence or remaining silent. And the if you kind of need a diagram to show this, but the police put the prisoners in a situation where they're both better off confessing, but when they both confess, they're both better off than if they were both altruistic. So the prisoner's dilemma can be applied to a wide variety of circumstances. And let me go through a few. So first there's what I'll call the student's dilemma. Let's say a professor is going to curve an exam and the professor is going to give the same number of A's, A minuses, B's, B pluses, and so on. So no matter how much the students study, no matter how well the students do, the average grade and the distribution of grades are going to be the same. And say the students can significantly improve their grades by studying, and let's also assume, sadly somewhat realistically, that the student's goal is really to maximize their grades. They're not worried as much about what they're going to learn. So the students you could imagine would like to say, hey, you know what, we're going to get the same grade distribution no matter what. Why don't we all agree to not study? Because if we all don't study, you know, that we're better off than if we all study, because if we all study, probably everyone will get the same relative grade if we all study about the same amount, you know, the same grade we would have before, but we've put all this work into this class that we didn't have to. You know, we could have put that work into other classes where maybe the, the grades aren't curved. Unfortunately, the students are in a prisoner's dilemma because you'd be like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, yeah, let's agree not to study. But then you'll secretly study because then you can really raise your grade. And since all the students have an incentive to do this, they can't trust each other. The only way around this prisoner's dilemma with students studying would be if they could maybe, maybe they'll all hang out, you know, the, the, the night before the test and they'll all watch each other and make sure they don't study, or maybe they'll force each other to reveal each other's grades, and if someone did really well and you didn't think they could have done well without studying, you'll somehow punish them. So a professor can probably, you know, have a curved exam, announce it, and count on the students not being able to cooperate enough in order to not study, and at a deeper level, the professor could also say, and you know what, if my students manage to defeat me by I'm collaborating to not studying. Well, at least they've learned how to cooperate. They've learned how to overcome the prisoner's dilemma. So I'm still happy. They've still succeeded at this test. All right. Another example of the prisoner's dilemma, and this is the most important one in economics, are firms competing to lower prices. So imagine that a bunch of firms are chart. You know, they sell about the same product and they're competing on price, and customers are going to the firm that offer the, offers the lowest price. Well, every firm would have an incentive to slightly over, undercut the other firms in price. So, you know, if someone else is charging $50 for a widget, you'll say, oh, I'll charge $49, and I'll get all the other firm's customers. But then the other firm will charge $40, $48, and so on, we'll go down till we make no profit. So this, the firms are in a prisoner's dilemma where being mean to the other firms is slightly undercutting them and being nice is not, but the firms will have this natural incentive to try to undercut each other. Now again, the firms could maybe overcome the prisoner's dilemma if they could collude. Antitrust law, by the way, in the United States at least, is designed to make it illegal for firms to collude to lower price. It doesn't mean firms don't actually collude. Firms could also you know, punish each other. They could say, well, I'll charge a high price, but if I ever see someone else charging a slightly lower price, then I'll lower my price to match. Now, customers can um, play a role in this firm's 
um, prisoner's dilemma situation by, by pushing the firms into a prisoner's dilemma. So let's imagine now you're a customer and you buy a lot of widgets. You know, you, you buy thousands of widgets a month and both all the firms selling widgets are charging $50. And you go to a firm and say, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll switch. I'll buy all my widgets from you if you just charge me $45. Come on, I know it's worth it. I know you'll increase your profits if you do it. And the firm might respond, yeah, I, I'd certainly be willing to lower my price to get your business if nothing else would change. But I know full well that if I charge you $45 and the other firms find out, they're going to start offering you $43, so I'm worse off. What the customer could then do is say, okay, fine, charge me $50 officially, but give me a secret $5 discount. Or if you don't want to give me a secret discount, you know, I buy other stuff from you too. I buy widgets and gizmos. Keep charging me 50 for widgets. I don't care. But I'll switch all my business to you for widgets if you lower the price of gizmos. And we all know you're lowering the price to me for gizmos because to get my widget business. So, you know, the firms will think about doing this. And what if, what if all the firms refuse, though? That you're, you're the customer and all the firms refuse to give you a secret discount. Well, then you could start lying. You could go to one firm and say, hey, you know, you're charging me 50, but this other firm's offering me a secret discount, so can you match that? And now you've created a distrust among the firms because they know they each have an incentive to try to give secret discounts. And if even that doesn't work, what you can do is you could suddenly switch all your business to another firm, even if you're not getting a discount, but let, then let it be known that you're switching because you got a secret discount and the firms will distrust each other. See, whenever people are trying to overcome a prisoner's dilemma, they know there's an incentive to cheat. Going back to the original Moloch example, if I could get a messenger, we could get a messenger to the other town, we would want to say, hey, we guarantee we will not accept Moloch's offer. But of course, then you have an incentive to accept it. So you have an incentive when you're competing with other firms to say, oh, no, no, we're going to charge a high price. You keep charging a high price. But then to secretly give a discount. There's a, a prisoner's dilemma facing athletes and performance enhancing drugs. Let's imagine that there's, there's say steroids and the steroids have two effects. First, they do make you a better athlete, but second, there is significant long-term health harms. So you, you sacrifice your long-term health if you take a steroid, but you also become a better athlete. So all of the say baseball players would be better off if none of them took steroids than if all of them did. And let's, we'll make the simplifying assumption that if everyone takes steroids, it increases everyone's performance by an equal amount. So you're not a relatively better baseball player in a world with everyone taking steroids than no one taking steroids. But unfortunately, you know, if all the athletes agree, hey, let's not take steroids, well, every individual athlete has an incentive to cheat and secretly take them. Because if you secretly take steroids, you can improve your relative performance. So if you know no one else is taking steroids, you want to take them to be one of the best. And if you know everyone else is taking steroids, well, then you need to take them to have any chance of competing. So what the athletes should do to overcome this is what they actually do when they say, hey, let's make it illegal to take steroids and let's all test each other. So you can get a really weird situation where the athletes have an incentive to agree to not take steroids, to promise not to take steroids. They have an incentive to agree to have everyone be tested, but then they have an incentive to try to cheat on the testing regime, where they try to take steroids in a way where it won't be detected. And depending on the medical technology, they might get away with it, they might not. 
and you would expect that you know athletes will be taking chances so there'll be periodic scandals where they get caught taking steroids or where they don't get caught taking steroids. All right, I'm going to do another prisoner's dilemma example. Say you, you have a daughter, you know, 14-year-old girl in high school, and she comes to you and she says, you know, I, I have to buy this really expensive dress. And, and you're like, well, why? It's like, well, look, all of the other girls, they've got very expensive dresses, and status in my school isn't part dependent upon how nicely you dress. So I'm sorry, you, you've got to spend, mom and dad, you've got to spend hundreds of dollars buying you really nice clothes, or I will be at a disadvantage in the status competition. So just to stay even, I, you know, just to have an equal chance of getting high status, I need to buy these really expensive dresses because all the other parents are doing this. So you know, you're suspicious, you talk to the other parents, and all the girls are telling their parents that. They're saying, yeah, you know, we, it, it's common for everyone to dress really, really nicely at our school, and girls who don't are looked down upon. You know, you, you hate that situation, you think it's horribly unfair, the girl who doesn't dress well loses social status, but you know you you can't you don't you don't see how to change that, and you don't want your daughter to be disadvantaged. Maybe you don't want to buy her high status by getting her the most expensive dress, but you you certainly don't want her to be at a disadvantage. But then you know your parents get together and you're like you know wait maybe we can do something about this. Maybe we can escape this sort of prisoner's dilemma this of of status and dresses. What if we go to the school and we say, let's make all of the students at the school wear a uniform. And the uniform won't be that expensive. So, you know, this way, all of our, our daughters won't know, no one will have an advantage or disadvantage based on their dress. So we'll go to the school and the school will make our children wear dresses that are, rel you know, a uniform that's relatively cheap. And this way, none of our daughters will be at a disadvantage. This makes sense, and of course, parents do this, and we see it. Numerous schools, you know, there's um, everyone is just wearing a dress. Every, sorry, everyone's wearing a uniform that's the same. Now, whenever there's a prisoner's dilemma, and you think you've escaped it, well, Moloch wants to pull you back in. So, girls in the school, they're still going to try their very best to compete based on you know on, on what they wear. So if there's a uniform, but it doesn't cover shoes, and girls will say, oh, I'm going to get really expensive shoes. I'll, and then you'll pressure their parents, oh, but mom, you know, I got to get this $300 pair of shoes because all the other girls have it. So then maybe the school makes, school, makes, a, a, makes shoes part of the uniform. But then the girls will compete on haircuts, or really nice eyeglasses, or really nice jewelry. So anything that's not regulated, the girls will, will compete on that. And so you end up having to regulate more and more. And even if you've regulated everything they can wear, the girls will try to come up with exceptions. They'll say, oh, but you know, I'm on the cheerleading squad, so I, I have to be able to change into my cheerleading outfit, and I'll have to wear that, and that'll give me a status advantage. So whenever there's a prisoner's dilemma, and people have manage to sort of reduce it, the, the harm of it happening, reduce the chance of people falling into it, there's always incentives to cheat on that agreement, and there's no way, there's no way around that. Uh, okay, well, thank you for listening to me today. Goodbye.